Israeli military forces have surrounded Gaza City and are launching attacks on the infrastructure of Hamas, including destroying tunnels the militants use to launch attacks. Our story is coming up on this Friday, November 3rd. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also coming up. Cornell University cancels classes to acknowledge the extraordinary stress its campus has been under as a student is accused of making violent anti-Semitic threats against Jewish people. After an off-duty pilot tried to crash an Alaska airline flight, many pilots and mental health professionals are calling for the FAA to update its protocol around mental health issues. These stories and the rise of concert films thanks in part to Taylor Swift coming up. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel pushing for a humanitarian pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas to allow for more aid to get into Gaza and for more Americans and other foreign nationals to get out of the besieged territory. It is very important that when it comes to the protection of civilians who are caught in a crossfire of Hamas's making, that everything be done to uh, protect them and to bring assistance to those who so desperately need it. Blinken met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and says he emphasized the need for the protection of civilians in Gaza and in the West Bank. The Israeli military has encircled Gaza City, separating its main urban center from the rest of the territory. NPR's Greg Myrie reports. With its overwhelming firepower, Israel's infantry and armored vehicles have surrounded Gaza City. Hamas is fighting back, and Israel's military says it's waging face-to-face battles. Israel launched the ground operation a week ago in response to the Hamas attack on October 7th. It's increasingly clear Israel will focus its troops on northern Gaza in general and Gaza City in particular. Israel has repeatedly told Palestinian civilians to go to the southern part of the territory. Israel's military says more than 20 of its soldiers have been killed over the past week. Hamas has not announced casualty figures. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former President Donald Trump has asked a federal appeals court to lift the gag order issued against him in his election interference case. Trump wants the restrictions put on pause while his appeal plays out in court. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. A U.S. District Court judge imposed the gag order last month, barring Trump from making public statements targeting prosecutors, court staff, and likely witnesses. Trump appealed. Now his attorneys are asking the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to lift the restrictions while it considers his appeal. In his new filing, Trump's lawyers say no court in American history has imposed a gag order on a criminal defendant who is actively campaigning for public office, let alone a leading candidate for president. They argue that the gag order violates the First Amendment, and they deny that Trump's public comments threaten the administration of justice. They want the appeals court to rule on the request by November 10th. If that ruling goes against Trump, they suggest they will appeal to the Supreme Court. Ryan Lucas, NPR News. Separately, in Trump's New York civil fraud case, a judge is now issuing a limited gag order, barring all lawyers involved in the trial from making public statements about confidential communications. Testimony from Trump's sons wrapped today in New York, with Eric Trump saying he relied on accountants and attorneys to ensure the accuracy of financial documents. Donald Trump is expected to take the stand on Monday. The former president and his sons are accused of inflating the value of business assets in order to secure better financing terms and tax benefits. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The United Auto Workers Agreement with Jeep maker Stellantis comes at a cost for dozens of workers here in Massachusetts. As part of the deal, the Stellantis facility in Mansfield will be shutting down in 2025. Regional Union Representative Brandon Mancia says that 40 to 50 workers in Mansfield will have the right to transfer to new parts of a distribution facility in New York. Folks are going to have um, you know, job security and transfer rights guaranteed, so no one is uh, losing a job, uh, but the specific plant in Mansfield will, will be um, shutting down. Mancia says some of those workers may be eligible for retirement packages that are now being negotiated. Massachusetts took in less tax revenue last month than expected. The Department of Revenue says the state collected just over $2.5 billion. That's $186 million less than anticipated. For the first four months of the fiscal year that began in July, the state collected about $355 million short of what was expected. If you have a mail-in election ballot that you haven't mailed in yet, it might be better for you to hand-deliver it. That's the advice from the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office ahead of Tuesday's election. State law requires that mail-in ballots for local elections be received by the time polls close in order to be counted. All lanes of the Bourne Bridge are back open now that a major renovation project is finished. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced today that repairs to the Cape Cod Bridge it maintains are done two weeks ahead of schedule. The work began in mid-September. The state is trying to get funding to replace the aging Bourne and Sagamore bridges. And Nova Scotia today announced the selection of the tree it will give to Boston as its annual Christmas gift. The 45-foot white spruce will be cut down later this month and shipped to Boston. It will then be decorated and will adorn the Boston Common for the holiday season. It's Nova Scotia's way of thanking Boston for sending firefighting help after the deadly explosion in Halifax Harbor in 1917. In the forecast... Nice day today. Sunshine, a little bit chilly. Should have clouds move in tonight. Not too cold in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, remaining cloudy, a little bit milder, close to 60 degrees. 55 now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The ground war in Gaza is intensifying as it enters its second week. Israeli officials say that 25 soldiers have died so far. Meanwhile, Gaza's health ministry says nearly 200 Palestinian civilians were killed in an airstrike at a refugee camp on Tuesday. Speaking today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken expressed concern over the growing number of casualties. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. We've been clear that as Israel conducts its campaign to defeat Hamas, how it does so matters. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has been looking into the details of Israel's campaign on the ground in Gaza and joins us now. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Jeff, let's talk about what's happening on the ground there right now. What do we know? The Israeli military has pushed into the Gaza Strip from three points, two from the north and one cutting all the way across the middle of the Strip. And in doing so, it's encircled Gaza City. Now, before the war, Gaza City was home to a little over half a million people. It was the largest city in the territory. The Israeli military says it's also a Hamas stronghold filled with tunnels and weapons caches. I spoke to Sean McFarland, a retired U.S. Army general, and he said surrounding an enemy is a pretty standard tactic in urban warfare. They're setting the conditions there 
to go into the city, but first they have to kind of close off the perimeter. Okay, and Jeff, if Israeli forces go into Gaza City, what could that look like? Well, we've had a look at satellite imagery from the commercial company Planet, and it shows armored vehicles parked in these areas cleared by Israeli bulldozers at different points on the edge of the city. But McFarland and other experts we showed the images to say this doesn't look like an occupation force. There just aren't enough troops to really take control of the entire city. Instead, McFarland thinks part of the force will prevent Hamas fighters from entering and leaving, while other troops go into the city and strike at Hamas targets in limited raids. I mean, Jeff, what could that kind of fight that you're describing there mean for the civilians who are trapped in Gaza City? It's not good. Urban warfare like this is very brutal. It can kill a lot of civilians. And from what we can see on social media, it seems like current Israeli rules of engagement allow significant civilian casualties. I spoke to Mark Garlasco, a former U.M. war crimes investigator, and he says this is quite different than earlier battles Israel has fought in Gaza. The Israelis obviously have a a higher tolerance for civilian casualties in this conflict than we've seen in prior conflicts. And I think the reason for that is they believe that this is an existential conflict. And Garlasco brought up that airstrike you mentioned earlier as an example. Israel says it killed a top Hamas leader, but doing so meant dropping bombs in an area filled with civilians. I mean, to that point, the stories that we are hearing out of Gaza already are terrible. And yet, from what you are describing, it sounds like this could really just be the beginning. Is there any way to protect innocent people? Well, the U.S. has called for a humanitarian pause in the fighting to allow aid to come in. So far, Israel doesn't seem even remotely interested in that. But Garlasco says it may face more international pressure the longer this ground offensive goes on, because international law requires them to minimize civilian casualties. Even though Hamas may violate the laws of war, it doesn't mean that Israel can, right? And while Israel has a right to defend itself, that right is not unlimited. In particular, Garlasco says that Israel, Israeli strikes need to be proportionate, meaning that the military benefits are worth the civilian harm. The UN is already echoing this concern. Earlier this week, they warned that the strike at the refugee camp could amount to war crimes because of questions of proportionality. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thank you. Thank you. Tensions are running high on some college campuses in light of the Israeli-Hamas war. And today, Cornell University in New York canceled all classes. Earlier this week, a student was arrested for allegedly threatening violent attacks against Jewish students at the college. Ava Pukach of member station WRVO has been reporting this story and joins us now. Hi, Ava. Hi. Okay, so just walk us through what has been happening on campus at Cornell that made the administration take a pretty unusual step, right? Canceling all classes? So Cornell President Martha Pollack called for a community day today in recognition of the extraordinary stress of the past few weeks with the Israeli-Hamas war breaking out. And there's a high number of Jewish students at Cornell, a little bit more than 20%. And some of them have family being affected by the conflict. And in addition to that, Sunday evening, a series of violent threats were made against the university's Jewish students. And one message specifically targeted 104 West, the university's kosher dining hall, run by the Center for Jewish Living. The suspect, Patrick Dye, allegedly said he was going to shoot up that building. Mm. Dye's a 21-year-old student, and he was arrested Tuesday. What's been the reaction so far of the students on campus? Like, what are you hearing from them? 
So there had been earlier rallies on campus in support of Palestinians and Israelis, but this latest incident at Cornell has made some students fearful. There's been an increased police presence on campus since the threats were made. Earlier today, I spoke with Molly Goldstein. She's the president of the Center for Jewish Living at Cornell. I think I would just say, you know, one line that we are scared, but we are strong and we are proud to be Jewish. Molly Goldstein says they've received tremendous support from the Jewish community internationally with gift baskets and food showing up. She mentioned they had 200 students and some faculty members who came to the center last night to show their support. And she says they're doing well and are not going to hide just because of hate. Hmm. Well, I know that the governor in New York, Kathy Hochul, I know that she visited the campus, has talked about the situation throughout this week. Tell us what she's been saying. Hogel says hate speech and anti-Semitism is on the rise and says the state of New York is not going to tolerate that. She says it's not just a problem at Cornell, but it's growing on a number of campuses and seen most acutely in the City University of New York. She asked a former chief judge of the state to conduct a study of anti-Semitic incidents at CUNY schools to see if policies or procedures need to be changed to help curb hate speech. And she hopes the recommendations could provide a roadmap for other universities in the state and has called this a reckoning for New Yorkers. I'm calling on New Yorkers to stand up for each other. When you see a fellow student being harassed, stand up for them, intercede, help them, let them know that that person does not represent our values as New Yorkers. And what do we know about the investigation of the student who was arrested earlier this week for threatening Jewish students? What's what's going on there? Patrick Dye appeared in federal court in Syracuse Wednesday. The most he spoke was to say, yes, your honor. And because it was initial appearance, he did not enter a plea. Um, And he's being held without bail. And his next court appearance is set for November 15th. That is Ava Pukach of WRVO. Thank you so much, Ava. You're welcome. Instant ramen noodles have long been a staple for Americans short on time or cash or just for anyone who likes an easy treat like me. Nissen's popular cup noodles ramen has been available here in the U.S. for around 50 years. And until very recently, I didn't realize I've apparently been cooking them all wrong. The company announced this week to my surprise and a lot of other people's surprise that a new design will make the cup microwavable for the first time. Oops. Here to talk about the big change and so much more is John Kung, author of a new cookbook. It's called Kung Food, Chinese American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. Welcome to All Things Considered. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, we should start by noting that Nissen does say on the old packaging that It shouldn't be microwave, but be that as it may, I have to know, do you microwave your cup noodles in that styrofoam cup like I do? Or are you the kind of person who boils the water separate and then eats them that way? I think there is a little bit of a cultural difference in this way. So as we know, like the cup noodles were consumed originally in Asia, where we have hot water on the ready constantly in the form of like instant hot water kettles. So we never actually took the time to boil the noodles. We always had boiling water ready. So I don't think, culturally speaking, we ever really microwaved our noodles over there. Do you have early memories of eating instant ramen? Was it a big part of your life? 
Oh my gosh, yeah. Every night I used to like wake up in the middle of the night and just like fix myself up a snack of like all sorts of different kinds of cup noodles that they would have available over there. John, I will confess that I am among the millions of people that follow you on TikTok, though I will just say that nothing <laughs> that I make in my kitchen at home looks as good as when you do it. And one of the things that I really love about your videos is when you started sort of going rogue, putting your own twist on your ramen. When did you start doing that? I just started doing that because I wanted a reason to try different brands and different flavors of ramen. There are brands that are like based in Singapore and other parts of Southeast Asia that produce things like curry flavors or laksa flavors that are like really bright and bold and vibrant. So as an excuse for me to just like try a new one, I started a series of like how to upgrade them on YouTube. Give us some examples. How can we upgrade our ramen at home? One of the most basic ways that I like to upgrade my instant noodles is simply just like making the broth a little bit more uh, deep and velvety. And to do that is pretty easy. You can add just a mixture of cornstarch and water and adding that to boiling broth will make it a lot thicker, closer to the kinds that you'll get at the ramen shops. It won't be anywhere near as good, but every step closer to that, I'd say is in a step in the right direction. One of the things I still really like to do is add an egg or maybe some like baby bok choy or something like that. I guess, I don't know if I'm trying to make it healthy, but I feel like a little veggie kind of elevates it. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Whether it be vegetables or you can use herbs or you can use like aromatics such as scallions, onions, shallots, those all go really well in there. John, you are making my lunch and dinner decisions for the next few days very easy. Thank you for that. <laughs> of course. John Kung is the author of a new cookbook. It's called Kung Food, Chinese American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden and the First Lady are in Lewiston, Maine right now, meeting with the survivors and the victims' families of last week's mass shooting. Biden says the violence opens a painful wound across the country. Too many Americans have lost loved ones or survived the trauma of gun violence. I know because Jill and I have met with them in Buffalo, in Uvalde, in Monterey Park, in Sandy Hook, and all, I've done, anyway, too many to count. The president just spoke in Lewiston, Maine. He and the first lady are visiting the bowling alley and lounge where 18 people were killed and more than a dozen others were hurt. Business news is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. A big jump on Wall Street to finish up the week. The Dow rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly a full percent, and the Nasdaq grabbed the most territory. It rose one and four-tenths percent. This is WBUR. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. 
Sunshine to close out the day today, overnight tonight, turning overcast, not too chilly in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should stay overcast, turn a little bit milder though, close to 60 degrees. Then Sunday, some sunshine burning through the clouds, temperatures in the mid-50s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. It is the highest grossing concert tour of 2023. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Taylor Swift's massive global tour is still going, and she's on track to break Elton John's record for the highest grossing tour of all time. But you know another thing bringing in megabucks for Swift? The nearly three-hour-long concert film of her tour out last month. It's already grossed more than $200 million worldwide. Hollywood studios and musicians, oh, you bet they are paying attention. Mia Galupo wrote about it for The Hollywood Reporter. It's a situation where there's a lot of money to be had. It's a space that hasn't really been looked into much by artists because it hasn't really been embraced by exhibitors, by Hollywood. But as with anything where Taylor Swift goes, many people follow. So uh, as soon as people started seeing the success that Swift had, uh, people have started paying attention. Well, Beyonce is going to be coming out with her own concert film next Mm -hmm. month, right? So... I'm just thinking, yeah, okay, she is also a huge global economic force like Taylor Swift. I guess my question is, is there even space for smaller, lesser known artists to come out with concert films? Or do you have to be a mega huge star to draw people out to theaters? No, you don't have to be, you know, this Beyonce or Taylor Swift level star, which, you know, are two of the top recording artists of all time. I was talking to the head of the National Association of Theater Owners. He made a great comparison where just as at the summer box office, you see the blockbusters, you know, the marvels of the world, you also see those independent films that still make a lot of money. Well, what about artists who are no longer alive? Like, I noticed you wrote in your piece, there might be a 1970s David Bowie concert film coming to theaters soon. How big of a draw is archival stuff like that these days? A really interesting thing happened recently with the film Stop Making Sense, which is the Talking Heads film that was recently re-released by A24. 60% of that opening weekend audience was actually under the age of 35, which means that the majority of that audience that was going to see that film wasn't even born when the Talking Heads were a band. They had disbanded by that point. So it's it's really fascinating. And that movie did incredibly well at the box office. So there is this market there which exhibitors are trying to say, please make more of this type of film because audiences, as evidenced by something like Stop Making Sense or Taylor Swift, yeah. are going to show up to the theaters. 
But are these new concert films that are coming out more of the same? Because, I mean, way before Taylor, there was already a pretty large canon of concert films from Aretha Franklin Mm -hmm. to Led Zeppelin, from Prince to The Talking Heads, as you mentioned. Is there anything that sets Taylor Swift's film apart that, that maybe would signal a new direction for this whole genre. Yes, definitely. One of my sources who has been in the concert and live performance film space for a long while said a very interesting thing, which was concert films were ruined by poor execution. The (laughs) technology just wasn't there. It was a situation where you set up three cameras, you were looking at the stage, and that's not a very cinematic experience. For the Eras tour, which filmed over multiple nights at her SoFi Stadium tour here in Los Angeles, it employed a small armada of cameras and cameramen. How many are we talking? We are talking upwards of 40, according to reports. And this is including not just stationary cameras, but drones and cranes. (laughs) You know, this is a situation where the barrier to entry for that technology has lowered for artists and you are able to create an incredibly cinematic experience. And that is something that, you know, when I was there for the opening weekend of the Eras Tour in theaters, that's something that, you know, fellow moviegoers told me was was so exciting to them is Uh it was the closest thing to being there without being there it is that communal cinematic experience that is beautiful on its own mia galupo is a film writer at the hollywood reporter thank you so much mia thank you so much for having me the paramount plus anthology series lawman bass reeves is out this sunday with its first installment it chronicles the adventures of one of the first black men to serve as a deputy u.s marshal west of the mississippi npr tv critic eric degan says the program is a noble effort which often struggles to live up to the story of its legendary lead character lawman bass reeves should have started with a scene like this one Deep in the third episode, where Reeves is already a marshal, taking a prisoner to jail when he gets in a deadly argument with the white man who is supposed to be his assistant, also known as a posse man. You think another white posse man's gonna ride out with you? Help you like I have? And now you're gonna shoot me? No, but they will. What follows is a gunfight with a gang trying to free the prisoner. Reeves, played by David Oyelowo, shows his courage and his dead aim with a firearm. But viewers won't see that for a while. Instead, the series begins 13 years earlier, when Reeves is an enslaved man working for an arrogant officer in the Confederate Army. The officer responds cruelly when Reeves asks if he can learn to read. I still like to learn, master. So I could study the Bible. The officer drops the N-word while telling him black people don't really go to heaven. If you're going anywhere, you're going to where there's nothing. Only white folks go to the big dance, boy. And later, the officer suggests they play a card game where the prize is Reeves' freedom. But when Reeves sees the officer cheat... I played a queen of hearts. I had it. There's only one queen of hearts in this deck. Reeves loses his temper... and beats his master severely, forcing Reeves to go on the run. This long preamble keeps us from what we really want to watch, our hero as a bold lawman, reenacting the triumphs of the real-life Bass Reeves, who reportedly arrested 3,000 criminals during the late 1800s. This series takes way too long to build his legend, showing how Reeves spent time living with Native Americans and then as a failed farmer before becoming a marshal. And yet, we don't see other important moments from his past, like how he learned how to shoot and fight so well, or why he's so independent at a time when people of color were so oppressed. 
One hint we get is that he's devoutly religious, as he explains when another marshal played by Dennis Quaid needles him for his beliefs. You still believe in the Lord that let you spend half your life in chains? Man, man, those chains. God will give me the hope to believe in the future without him. Oyelowo plays Reeves as a man of few words, with empathy for people of color, but his lack of words makes space for long speeches from know-it-all white guys played by ace character actors like Quaid and Donald Sutherland as the judge who hires him as a marshal. I was encouraged to hire you for the color of your skin because the Indians would listen to someone like you. But that's not why I called you in. I need a man with a good gun and a straight spine. You up for the task? I wouldn't be sitting here my son the best if I wasn't. As a black man who loves westerns, I've complained for many years about the lack of a great film or TV show about Reeves, whose exploits some say inspired the fictional Lone Ranger character. But the four episodes of Paramount Plus' series I've seen so far fall short. Trying so hard to be a modern western epic, they often forget to be entertaining turning one of the Old West's most compelling figures into a virtuous cipher in the process. I'm Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. He played music with Dylan, The Stones, The Who, and many more. He discovered Leonard Skinner and has done way too much in music to mention here. Tonight, Al Cooper of Somerville is finally getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll talk with him. That's coming up on WBUR. There's nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live in the kitchen, on the road, or on a walk in the park. Get the free WBR app today. Sunshine now, but clouds should move in just in time for the weekend. Tonight, cloudy, windy, a little bit milder than has been around the mid-40s. Tomorrow, overcast and slightly milder in the upper 50s. Sunday should bring a mix of clouds and sunshine around the mid-50s. 55 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at FreshCityKitchen.com. And the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Benjamin Zander leads Wagner, Hindemith, and Brahms this Sunday, November 5th. BostonPhil.org. Cher has a confession about her voice. I'm not a Cher fan. I, I'm pretty good on stage, though, and I'm really funny, but not a big fan. Well, plenty of people are. Cher on her music and her first ever Christmas album. That and all the latest news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. Secretary of State is in the Mideast for a fourth time since the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel that killed 1,400 Israelis. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 9,000 Palestinians, many of them children, have been killed in Israel in Israel's counterattack against Hamas militants. Speaking in Tel Aviv, Secretary Blinken urged Israel to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza and to do more to protect civilians in its war with Hamas. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. We've been clear that as Israel conducts its campaign to defeat Hamas, how it does so matters. It matters because it's the right and lawful thing to do. It matters because failure to do so plays into the hands of Hamas and other terror groups. 
Israel's prime minister says there will be no ceasefire until Hamas releases more than 240 hostages. Blinken says he will be talking to regional leaders in Amman, Jordan this weekend about how to contain the conflict and get more aid into Gaza. Federal agents have raided the home of a key fundraiser for New York City Mayor Eric Adams as part of an investigation into whether he received illegal foreign donations. Early Thursday morning, Eric Adams was on a flight to Washington, D.C. to meet with lawmakers and White House officials. But within a couple hours, he was on his way back home to, quote, address a matter. The New York Times reports that the FBI raid of the Brooklyn home of Brianna Suggs is part of a larger investigation into whether the mayor's campaign conspired with the Turkish government to get illegal donations. The FBI is also reportedly looking into a construction company in Brooklyn and a small Turkish-owned university based in D.C. Adams has said he has not been contacted by any law enforcement agency. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden and the First Lady Jill have finished meeting with the survivors and families of the victims of last week's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Just a few moments ago, Biden spoke about the need for stronger gun laws. Because regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, a school, a church, without being shot and killed. The president and first lady went to the bowling alley and lounge where 18 people were killed and more than a dozen others hurt. Former Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis turns 90 today. As WBR's Amanda Beeland reports, the state is still trying to comply with a housing law Governor Dukakis signed some 40 years ago. Phil Johnston served as the Secretary of Human Services under the governor. His term started in 1984, just after Dukakis signed the Right to Shelter law. It guarantees housing for families who need it. When we started, there were exactly three state-funded shelters in Massachusetts. When we left office eight years later, there were 105. And um, I was very proud to work for him. Johnston says Dukakis is the most decent human being and the best public servant he's ever met. He says he'll be known in the years to come for both. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Governor Maura Healey has capped the number of families that will be helped under the law. She says the state does not have the resources to meet the demand. Police are looking for whoever is responsible for killing a man inside his home in Sharon. 62-year-old Brad Larson was found dead last night by a relative. Sharon's police chief says there appears to be no obvious threat to the neighborhood or to the town. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Sunshine this afternoon, clouds tonight, winds pick up, temperatures should fall to about the mid-40s, not too chilly tonight. Then for tomorrow, the gray will stay. Temperatures head up to toward 60 degrees. Sunday pulling back to the mid-50s with partly sunny skies, still some clouds around. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways in select theaters today, everywhere November 10th. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. 
Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once came out last year, it made history. And the Oscar goes to Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. That movie was widely beloved for its portrayal of Chinese immigrant parents struggling to connect with their American daughter. I don't want to hurt anymore, and for some reason when I'm with you, it just, it just hurts the both of us. This film felt new and fresh, but you know, at the same time, everything everywhere all at once is actually part of a long, complicated history of Asian representation on screen. And that complicated history is what writer Jeff Yang unspools in his new book, The Golden Screen. The book selects more than 130 films over the last century, and it invites contributors like author Preeti Chibber to reflect on how some of their favorite films shaped their own identities as Asian. Asian Americans. Jeff Yang and Preeti Chibber join us now. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hi. All right, Jeff, I want to start with you because, you know, under the title of this book, you have the phrase, the movies that made Asian America. Why did you feel a book like this had to be compiled? Well, this is a moment in which we are finally, for the first time, starting to see this plethora of diverse, inclusive, and authentic representations of our Asian experiences on screen. Even when you're kind of playing a little snippet of everything, everywhere, all once, winning the Oscar, I almost cheered out loud. I know. (laughs) And the book is sort of like a cheer out loud. I hear you talk about how a book like this gives us an opportunity to cheer. But Jeff, I noticed that you included films in this book that were beloved to some people, maybe are still beloved, but that peddled pretty flat, offensive representations of Asian people, like Lost in Translation, for example. You are a movie star. Yes. Yes, movies. I should be doing movies. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but and the Lat Pak. You know Lat Pak? Rat Pak? Rat Pak, oh, yes, please. When we talk about being made, it's not just pleasant experiences that help make us. Remember, for almost half a century, you couldn't see Asian images played by Asian people on yeah, screen right. for much of that time. I mean, they were in yellow face. Yeah. Right? Our response to those images, the ways that we processed or metabolized the sense of being othered by the screen, those are things that we still have to contend with as Asian Americans. But then there were also movies that you included that defied Asian American stereotypes, which were awesome, like Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. <laughs> Preeti, you write about this very movie. What did you love about how this particular film rebelled against the usual depictions of Asians? You know, it was wild. I was in college when this movie came out, and I was intensely grappling with the fact that I was not good at science. I had, like, my whole life was like, I'm going to be a doctor. Not because I wanted to, but, like, all my uncles were a doctor, all, like, so many aunties. And so I was like, I went pre-med. And then I was like, oh, I'm bad at this. (laughs) And Cal Penn, he was already a household name because he'd been in this indie movie called American Desi that all the Indian kids had, like, passed around. And so there was already that connection, and then he plays this character who, like, doesn't want to be a doctor. Do you actually believe, after the way you've just behaved, that I would ever even consider recommending you for admission? No. I'm going to be honest with you. The only reason I'm applying is for my dad will keep paying for my apartment. I really don't have a desire to go to med school. The number of 
Indian American kids I saw in media, I could count on one hand. Mm -hmm. And then to see one who wasn't a stereotype was like mind boggling. You know, what's interesting is that in this book, which is about movies that made Asian America, not all the movies are from America. Like Jeff, you include Mm. foreign films that were produced all over Asia. Tell us why were they important to include in the story you wanted to tell about Asian America? For me, watching Kung Fu movies in double feature theaters in Chinatown was the first time I saw Asian heroes who were saving the day, who were getting the girl. I loved action movies in America. I aspired to be the white actors who were on screen. But when I actually for the first time got to see people who shared some aspects of my life and my world, that was the first time I felt like something new was possible. Yeah. Preeti, is there like a beloved Bollywood film that you saw having an important influence on the way Hollywood started telling stories about Indian people? (sighs) Bollywood's the biggest film industry in the world is what we always say, right? But I feel like Bollywood cinema was seen as sort of gimmicky or not necessarily a valid art form for a long, long time. And it's something I grew up with. Like, it wasn't like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. It was like, I'm going to marry Amir Khan (laughs) because Dill was my favorite movie when I was five, which is this ridiculous romance with wonderful music. Bollywood was the only avenue towards sort of Indian representation for us. And the association to Hollywood, I think of like Bride and Prejudice or Polite Society, which just came out this year. Oh, I love that movie. Yes. The dance that Rhea does at her sister's wedding is Mardala from Devdat. It is the same dance that Madhuri Dixit does in that movie from like 2002. My entire family like sat up and was like, wait a minute, is she really going to do the dance? Because we knew what it was. It was referencing our cultural community in this like wonderful, wonderful way. So I think the influence of Bollywood is much more recent in Hollywood than when I was little for a multitude of reasons. But it was such a huge part of our community that all I wanted to do was like share it with everybody I knew. Yeah. I feel like so much of what we've been talking about is just waiting for a really long time. Like, it took Mm -hmm. so long after Joy Luck Club to see another Hollywood movie star an all-Asian cast speaking mostly in English. It took 25 years with Crazy Rich Asians. And the breakthrough was, (laughs) oh, my God, here's a film where almost everyone has an Asian face and speaks English. Whoa. But then there was a new breakthrough with Everything Everywhere All at Once. That movie made room for the weird Asians. That's what one of the writers and directors, Daniel Kwan, said in your book. So let me ask you this. What would you like to see be the next breakthrough for Asian American cinema? Mm. To not have to have a sharp intake of breath every single time a new Asian or Asian American film comes to Mm -hmm. the screen, right? We don't want to worry about whether it's going to be successful or represent us well. And I think we're kind of getting there. We finally arrived at the era where Asian Americans can be mediocre. (laughs) 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 We can can put (laughs) stories out there that don't have to match up with a model minority or even the standards of success that are often imposed on 
minorities in general. I'm still processing that it is our cinematic aspiration for us Asian Americans to be portrayed <laughs> as mediocre. It's true though, right? We don't want that burden of representation anymore. Yeah. Right? It's just like, because there's so few, you have to speak for everybody. Being able to recognize that creators from our community can make film or create art that doesn't have to be associated yeah. with identity is something that I think could be very exciting. The character just happens to be Asian. Exactly. It allows that character to exist in addition to that part of themselves. Preeti Chibber and Jeff Yang. The new book is called The Golden Screen, The Movies That Made Asian America. Thank you to both of you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elsa. This is NPR News. The National Transportation Safety Board is calling on the Federal Aviation Administration to reform mental health rules for pilots. That is after an off-duty pilot was accused of trying to shut down the engines during a Horizon Air flight in the midst of what his family describes as a mental health crisis. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Jonathan Levinson reports. Joseph Emerson tried to pull the handles of a fire suppression system on an October 22nd flight, nearly cutting fuel to the engines. About a day and a half earlier, the off-duty pilot had taken psychedelic mushrooms, according to his wife, Sarah Stretch. But those typically last about six hours. Between a friend's death, enormous pressure at work, training on a new aircraft, and stress at home from being gone so much, Stretch says he had been depressed for several months. We would have arguments because I don't understand the stress that he's going through. Stretch says she asked him if he could talk to somebody, maybe take medication to help with his depression. He's like, Sarah, I can't be out of work. We have to pay our mortgage. Like, if I go do that, I have to go through all these other hoops. Like, we can't afford to do that. The FAA relies on pilots to self-report mental health issues. And if they do, they might lose their medical clearance required to fly. To regain that clearance, pilots must see FAA-approved specialists, pass a battery of tests, and often have to submit their therapist notes for review, says Dr. Brent Blue. He evaluates pilots and issues flight medical clearances. It is not an easy process for them to get back into the cockpit. Two pilots at major U.S. airlines spoke to NPR on the condition of anonymity, fearing that speaking openly about their mental health struggles could have negative impacts on their careers. One said they started to feel better after six weeks on antidepressants, but that it took three years for their paperwork to be approved and for them to start flying again. Here's Blue. The process is very time-consuming and very expensive, and insurance will not pay for it because it's an FAA issue. The other pilot told NPR they were able to get on disability while waiting for approval to fly again, but it was just 50% of their salary. Blue says the FAA's medical clearance system doesn't incentivize pilots to seek help. It sort of encourages pilots not to disclose uh, any kind of mental health problem because of the onerous uh, evaluations the FAA requires. Dr. William Hoffman is a former aviation medical examiner who has studied healthcare avoidance among pilots. He acknowledges the process to get re-cleared is slow, expensive, and onerous, but he says... The FAA absolutely is due credit. In the last couple of years, they've made many positive steps forward as it relates to mental health. Before 2010, the agency didn't allow pilots to take any antidepressants. Now there's a list of approved drugs. While it's short, Hoffman says the agency has added to it. And he says they've sped up the process to get pilots with mild symptoms back flying. He adds that it's a misconception among many pilots that depression or anxiety are career enders. You can absolutely be a pilot and be participating in talk therapy or have a diagnosis of a mental health condition. 
Blue says the FAA's progress has been incremental and their rules are out of step with contemporary medicine. But he says changes could carry potential liability if the FAA let someone with mental health issues fly and there was an accident. The FAA is so worried about a smoking hole in the ground. In a statement, an FAA spokesperson said the agency encourages pilots to seek treatment and has invested resources to eliminate the stigma around mental health. The National Transportation Safety Board announced Thursday it plans to hold a discussion on mental health and aviation. They investigate transportation incidents and make safety recommendations. Joseph Emerson, meanwhile, is in pretrial detention in Oregon. His wife, Sarah Stretch, says he had no intention of hurting himself or anyone else. The day before he flew home, he texted a friend to make lunch plans. Just before boarding, he texted her. Can we just, like sit on the couch and cuddle and watch TV when we get home. He faces 83 charges of attempted murder in Oregon State Court and one federal charge of interfering with flight crew members. For NPR News, I'm Jonathan Levinson in Portland. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, U.S. employers added 150,000 jobs last month, about half as many as the month before. The Federal Reserve welcomes some cooling in the job market. That story still to come. Also, a shortage of school bus drivers means that some districts are having a cutback on bus services. What some companies are doing to fill the school transportation gap tonight at 6.30 here at 90.9 WBUR. Boston teams get the night off tonight, but they're back at work tomorrow. Celtics will be in Brooklyn tomorrow to play the Nets, and the Bruins will be in Detroit to take on the Red Wings. Patriots are at Gillette on Sunday to host the Washington Commanders. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Looks as if we're going to have a mainly gray first weekend of the month. Tonight we should have clouds move in, winds picking up, temperatures should fall to about the mid-40s, not too chilly tonight. Tomorrow, the gray will stay. Temperatures heading up towards 60. Sunday, pulling back to the mid-50s with partly sunny skies and still some clouds around. This is 90.9 WBUR, 55 degrees at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar. With scratch kitchens, customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in greater Boston. Burton'sGrill.com. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden pointed out how important it is to live your life so that you never, ever get mentioned on our show. You know how bad a first date is when it becomes a news story? (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. It's too late for all the people we'll be talking about on this week's news quiz. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Tonight, musician Al Cooper will formally get his due. He'll be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and honored for his musical excellence. And what could be more excellent than this? That's Cooper on the organ, creating one of the signature sounds of a folk rock classic. 
Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. Like a Rolling Stone launched Al Cooper's career, but the Hall of Fame is recognizing Cooper for his, quote, massive influence as a composer, multi-instrumentalist, singer, arranger, and producer. He formed Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and their hallmark sound heavy on the horns. He was part of the Seminole Blues Project, known for its 1960s urban blues. Al Cooper has played with the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, John Lee Hooker, and way more. He's produced solo works by three of the four Beatles and by B.B. King. And he founded his own record label and was the first to sign Leonard Skinner. Al Cooper is now 79 years old and lives in Somerville. His fans think he's long overdue for the Hall of Fame. He says he's surprised and honored. His first hit came when he was 21 years old. It was 1965, and he co-wrote the pop tune This Diamond Ring, made famous by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. I don't particularly like it. You don't like the song? How come? I know I like the song. I don't like the record. Why not? Not my taste. (laughs) But you helped write it. Yes, but, you know, you can have uh, different arrangements. And I think a great example is uh, later on in my career, I recorded it the way that I imagined it. And uh, it don't sound like the Gary Lewis record. No, Gary Lewis, although you certainly got a lot of paychecks on that one. But let's hear now from the one that you recorded later, re-recorded, almost like the director's cut. Let's listen to this. What is it about this one that makes it the Al Cooper version? Uh, it's just R&B. It's not screaming like the Gary Lewis record. I'm white. I'm white. I'm white. <laughs> well, it's you different. are. You are white, Al. I understand, but I just love black music. Cooper listened to black DJ Jocko Henderson on the radio when he was growing up in Brooklyn. Not long ago, he woke up in the middle of the night and turned on the old American gospel group, The Soul Stirrers. But Cooper's contributions to the American music scene, the ones that put him on the map, are in folk rock. The story of how he maneuvered his way into the studio when Bob Dylan was recording Like a Rolling Stone in 1965 is vintage. The producer invited Cooper to come to the control room to watch. Cooper was 21 years old and brought his guitar just in case. And so I got there early and I was sitting in the studio and Dylan came in with a guitar player and he sat down and started warming up. And I said, I don't have a chance here. My plan isn't going to work. But then Dylan decided the organ player should move to the piano. So they had to mic the piano and that took 15, 20 minutes. So While they were doing that, they gave the musicians a break, and I went out in the studio and sat down at the organ (laughs) because I was ambitious. Yes, you were very ambitious. (laughs) And you sat down at the organ as if you had been invited, which you hadn't, but they sure liked what you did. We should say it was a Hammond organ. 
you were hoping at the time that it was still on because you didn't know how to turn it on. That is correct. And what happened when everyone in the studio, including Dylan, looked over and saw you there? Well, nothing until the producer said, okay, this is take four. That was kind of, in many ways, my start. And it became copied. Oh, yeah. I ended up playing on the rest of the album. So a lot of people heard it. And then people called me because they wanted that sound. Al Cooper became so sought after. In 1969, the Rolling Stones had him play organ and piano on You Can't Always Get What You Want. They let him listen to an early take. He thought the opening of the song needed something. So on his own, he recorded the French horn, and they used it. I made the part up, so I didn't have to learn anything. Are you a perfectionist about that stuff? Well, when I'm playing for the Rolling Stones, yes. And it is so beautiful. I've always wondered, when you, you know, turn on the radio now, if you listen to the radio, and I hope you do, or go into a store and you hear yourself, what do you think? I laugh. How come? I had it inside me to do these things, but all I was missing was the opportunity. It's such a great, rich life. Uh, Al Cooper, thank you, and congratulations. Oh, thank you. You can't always get what you want. Al Cooper, Somerville resident, gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tonight. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. With the end of daylight saving time this weekend comes an increase in car crashes in Massachusetts. Mark Shieldrop is a spokesperson for AAA Northeast. He says it's especially dangerous as most people drive home from work. According to state crash data, there's a 51% increase in crashes in that 5 p.m. hour here in Massachusetts. And the danger is especially concerning for pedestrians. In that same hour, we see a 240% increase in pedestrian crashes. Shieldrum says it's important to make sure you get enough sleep as your body adjusts to the time change. He also says it's important to make sure your car's headlights are working properly and that your windshield is clean both inside and out. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for clouds moving in, temperatures down to about the mid-40s overnight. Then for tomorrow, lots of clouds, temperatures up around 60, partly sunny on Sunday, should reach about the mid-50s once again. 54 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 458. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Participant, who brought audiences spotlight, presenting Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in a Mexican town inspiring students to dream. Starring Eugenio Derbez, now playing in theaters. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, the leader of Hezbollah north of Israel commented on the Israel-Hamas war and supported Hamas. One expert says that's part of the strategy. Hezbollah is going to let the situation along the border with northern Israel be tense, but it will not boil over into full-scale war. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the implications of Hezbollah's support of Hamas. After a natural disaster, search and rescue dogs play a critical role in locating people. Experts say the key lies in the shape of the dogs' noses. They just have a much larger surface area that's able to detect odorant molecules. So they're just pre-wired for odor processing in a way that our brains aren't. More on how rescue dogs are recruited and trained coming up. Also, actress-director Meg Ryan about her new movie in which former lovers get snowed in at an airport. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East, talking to Israel about ways to minimize civilian deaths in the war against Hamas in Gaza. He's also talking to countries in the region about a post-war Gaza, as NPR's Michelle Kalman reports. Secretary Blinken says in his conversations with Israeli officials, one thing is clear. Hamas, which carried out an unprecedented attack on Israel last month, can't be in charge of Gaza. There cannot and must not be a return to the pre-October 7th status quo. That's unacceptable. It's not tolerable for Israel. It shouldn't be acceptable or tolerable by Uh, by anyone else. He says Israel does not want to reassume control over Gaza. Blinken says he will be talking with regional leaders about the day after and about how to combat the ideology of Hamas with what he calls a clear vision of a Palestinian state and a way to get there. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. The Senate's top Democrat, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, says the $14.3 billion Israel aid bill passed by House Republicans last night is not going to become law. NPR's Eric McDaniel has the story. Schumer, who's joined by his Republican counterpart in the Senate, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, is calling for an aid bill that goes beyond Israel. We will work together on our own bipartisan emergency aid package that includes aid to Israel, Ukraine, competition with the Chinese government, and humanitarian aid for Gaza. That's in line with the approach favored by President Biden, who's requesting a combined $106 billion in aid money. 
The chasm between House Republicans and the bipartisan coalition in the Senate is likely to further delay support that Israel and Ukraine's governments say is sorely needed. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden traveled to Lewiston, Maine today to meet with the families of victims of last week's mass shooting there, along with first responders. The president and First Lady added a bouquet to a makeshift memorial outside a bar where some of the 18 people who died were gunned down. Later, Biden said Americans should not have to live in fear. Regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, a school, a church, without being shot and killed. Shooting carried out by a military reservist who later took his own life was the deadliest in the state's history. Biden has previously called for a ban on assault-style weapons like the one used in the Lewiston shooting, recently created the first White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. October jobs numbers showed signs of slipping slightly, though still show unemployment at relatively low levels. The Labor Department report out today shows the economy added 150,000 jobs last month, with the unemployment rate up slightly to 3.9 percent. That played well on Wall Street. The Dow was up 222 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are renewing their call for a pause in the Israel-Hamas war to allow for humanitarian efforts in Gaza. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey say they also want the Biden administration to work for the release of the Israeli hostages that are held by Hamas and to do more to help Americans get out of Gaza. Congressman Jim McGovern tells WBUR's Radio Boston the humanitarian crisis the war has created is unacceptable. To the extent that more and more of this devastation continues where civilians are caught in the crossfire, in the long run, I, th- I think that undercuts Israel's security in the region. I think it undercuts support for Israel around the world. Yesterday, faith leaders who are calling for a ceasefire marched on Warren and Markey's Boston offices. If you're voting by mail for next week's municipal elections, it's probably best you hand-deliver your ballot at this point. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says mailed-in ballots need to reach local election officials by the time polls close on Election Day Tuesday. It can take sometimes as much as seven days to get mail delivered. So anything that's mailed as of today, Friday, is unlikely to be received by Tuesday or might not be received by Tuesday. All cities and some towns will be holding municipal elections Tuesday. Special state elections will also be held in some communities. All lanes of the Bourne Bridge are back open now that a major renovation project is finished. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers said today that repairs to the Cape Cod Bridge It maintains or done two weeks ahead of schedule. The work began in mid-September. The state is trying to get the funding to replace the aging Bourne and Sagamore bridges. Still nice and sunny out there in much of the Boston area. Should have clouds, though, moving in tonight. Not too cold in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should stay cloudy but turn a little bit milder, close to 60. Then Sunday, some sunshine should burn through the clouds. Temperatures in the mid-50s. 54 now in Boston at 506. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a moment, we'll talk about a controversial football play that's boosted the Philadelphia Eagles all season. But first, a fall frost hit the job market last month after a sizzling September. Hiring cooled considerably in October. U.S. employers added 150,000 jobs during the month, and that is about half the pace of the month before. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with the details. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what's behind the slowdown? Well, part of it reflects the fallout from the auto workers' strike, which has now been tentatively resolved. Uh, the manufacturing sector showed a loss of 35,000 jobs last month. Almost all those were auto jobs or parts suppliers. So presumably next month's report will show all those folks back at work, uh, assuming the tentative UAW contracts with Ford, Stellantis, and General Motors are ratified. Mm-hmm. We also continue to see some fallout from the Hollywood actors' strike, which is now in its fourth month. Yeah. Uh, the movie business had another 5,000 jobs in October, and it's down about 44,000 jobs since May when the writers went on strike. Even if you set aside those labor disputes, though, the economy would have added about 190,000 jobs in October, which is a solid number, but it's a still a significant slowdown from that blockbuster month in September. Interesting. Well, what's happening with unemployment these days? The unemployment rate inched up last month to 3.9%. That's still very low. It's been under 4% now for 21 months in a row, which is the longest streak like that in more than 50 years. There are signs, though, of a little more slack in the job market. Uh, Hours worked were down last month. Wages grew more slowly than in the previous months. Julia Pollack, who's chief economist at the job search website ZipRecruiter, notes that over the last three months, wages have been rising at an annual rate of only about 3.2%. She says as long as wage growth stays in that range, it should take some pressure off inflation, and that would be reassuring for the Federal Reserve. So that's a very, very cool number there, and that should make the Fed feel quite confident and comfortable with its decision this week to pause rate hikes. A lot of investors believe the Fed is done raising interest rates altogether. Uh, That has the stock market on a tear this week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose more than 200 points today, and it's up a whopping 5% for the week. Well, let me ask you this, Scott. Is this October slowdown in job growth just a little chill, or is it more the beginning of like a, a deep freeze, so to speak? You know, it still looks like a pretty mild winter for the job market, but we'll see. Uh, The Fed is trying to pull off that elusive soft landing where we get inflation under control without a big spike in unemployment. Before the leaves started coming down this fall, the Fed had already raised interest rates to their highest level in more than two decades. Uh, Pollock says those higher borrowing costs are really what's driving this slowdown in hiring, and she says it could be reversed if need be. Employers tell us that they have many vacancies they want to fill, they want to expand, they want to open new locations. They're pausing right now because there's just too much uncertainty and the cost of credit is just too high for those investments to pencil out. But if rates start moving down, I think you'll see a surge in business confidence in hiring again. For now, at least, the Fed is not even talking about cutting interest rates. There is one more Fed meeting in December, and we'll see then what policymakers think the Uh, next year has in store for us. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Earlier today, the leader of the Lebanese political party and militant group Hezbollah gave televised remarks, his first public address since the war between Israel and Hamas began nearly a month ago. Hassan Nasrullah boasts about Hezbollah's support for Hamas and suggests that a wider conflict is possible. 
I want to bring in Bruce Rydell. He's a former CIA analyst and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. The speech was widely anticipated, not just by those in the Middle East, but of course around the world. What stuck out to you? What struck out to me was that he strongly endorsed Hamas and sided with it but went out of his way to say Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel was a purely Palestinian affair. I think what this means is that Hezbollah is going to let the situation along the border with northern Israel be tense, uh, to have occasional firefights, but it will not boil over into full-scale war as happened in 2006. I think that there are many folks out there who fear the idea of this conflict spreading. What type of consequences could that have for the region? It's already spread. We had a conflict in Gaza. We now have a conflict in Gaza and a conflict in the West Bank. The conflict in the West Bank is not as intense, but there is extremely high tensions in the West Bank. And in some ways, the West Bank is already in the first stages of a third intifada. But it could also spread to Lebanon. This is an extremely tense and volatile region. Potentially, this conflict could spread further. One possibility is, of course, Jordan. Jordan is a country where 80% of the population are of Palestinian heritage. The Israeli-Jordanian peace treaty is not popular in Jordan. Overwhelmingly, the Jordanian people would like the king to break diplomatic relations with Israel. That's a possibility, too. Uh, and it is a very dangerous situation. From Based on what you have seen in your knowledge of the region, how likely do you think it is that we could soon see this become a wider conflict, that we could see Hezbollah fully enter the war? It's very unpredictable. You know, a single incident could set things off. We know from reliable reporting that there have been some in the Netanyahu government who advocated a preemptive strike on Lebanon. Now, the United States has discouraged that, and Prime Minister Netanyahu appears not to have gone that way. But it is certainly a possibility. Much of the battle is taking place in Gaza, where the death toll is in the high thousands and continues to climb. What do you think is next for its residents? What are you paying attention to there? I find this posture of telling Gazans they have to leave the northern half of Gaza resting because it suggests that Israel would like to have a buffer zone in northern Gaza. Would that be a buffer zone controlled by the Israel Defense Forces? Who, who was going to actually administer northern Gaza? I suspect that the Israelis don't have clear answers to these questions and that they're looking and trying to find their way forward. As General Davis Petraeus famously said when we started the war with Iraq, tell me how this ends. Uh, we don't have an answer to the, to the end game story at this stage. We heard Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reject Secretary of State Antony Blinken's calls for a humanitarian pause. Um, he essentially has said that Israel refuses any sort of temporary ceasefire that does not include a return of those over 200 hostages that were taken by Hamas following that October 7th attack. And so I guess my question to you is, 
it suggests that this conflict could be ongoing for some time. And what consequences could that have for the broader region? The Israelis are talking about a war that will last months, not days, not weeks, but months. And I think it's important to understand just how enormous the shock of October 7th was for Israel. Israel lost over a thousand casualties on that day. They've never had a day like this in the 75 years of Israeli history. So they are particularly not likely to give up unless they get their hostages returned. And there's going to have to be a lot of diplomacy behind the scenes if that is going to happen. It's a very fluid and dangerous situation. And the longer it goes on, the worse it will get. That is Bruce Rydell, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you. My pleasure. Football has always been a game of inches. Worthy! Stop short! Four plays from the one! They can't get in! One play in particular has been this season's topic of water cooler huddles, fantasy football group chats, and the ire of NFL defensive coordinators. The tush push. It worked again! Are they going to push him in? Yep. In there. Touchdown. They've run that play a few times, haven't they? That's right. The tush-push is a play where the quarterback lines up behind the center. Instead of the quarterback driving ahead by himself, two, three, four, sometimes five players jump behind the caboose of the quarterback, and they push, push, push. And one team in particular, the Philadelphia Eagles, seems to have this play down to a science. So far, converting more than 80% of the time for a first down this season. Quick, they're back in BS territory. Brotherly shove, that is. Everybody's in there. And it's a first down. This Philly evolution has been legal since 2005, but it wasn't employed as frequently or efficiently until Nick Sirianni made it a staple last year. Jason Kelsey starts it off. Jalen Hurts, uh, you know, is right there. Right, you've seen it across the league that people can't do it like we can do it. It's true. Aside from the Eagles, only a handful of teams are remotely successful when it comes to the push. Denver Broncos head coach Sean Payton dismissed the tush push, saying it, quote, amounts to a rugby scrum. To get to the bottom of this, we asked Gavin Hickey, head rugby coach of the number one ranked Navy midshipman. Football listeners and football fans probably won't love me for saying this, but if we just go way back, you know, we have to say the football came from rugby. Pitches were narrow. It was getting too violent. Hickey says all this talk over this one play actually is a disservice to the Eagles' hard work and to the strength of their quarterback. The fact that Jalen Hurts can squat 600 pounds plus is a big piece of the success rate the Eagles have in the touch push. Um, that along with obviously Kelsey and Malada and Johnson, I mean, they're massive men. In addition to our call, Hickey's received a few calls from NFL teams who hope to put a stop to the push. And Hickey's been candid with his advice on emphasizing timing, but concedes that the offense will always have the advantage. His advice? Make sure that everybody's in sync, everybody knows what they're doing uh, at the same time. Tongue in cheek, the best way to stop it is don't give a fourth and one. And we'll be watching on Sunday to see if the Dallas Cowboys have been listening. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a big jump on Wall Street to finish up the week. The Dow rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly a full percent, and the Nasdaq grabbed the most territory. It rose one and four-tenths of a percent. Business news and all the updates on this day in business coming up at 6.30 on WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. The bipartisan infrastructure law isn't just building projects for people. It includes $200 to restore native fish habitat to help species better weather climate change. That story is coming up on WBUR. In more business, the average price of home heating oil in the state is still on the way down. The latest State Department of Energy Resources survey has the average statewide price at 4.12 a gallon. That's 16 cents a gallon lower than last week, 45 cents lower than this time last year. It's 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. A nice evening ahead, then clouds should move in just in time for the weekend. Tonight, cloudy, windy, a little bit milder than it has been around the mid-40s. Tomorrow, overcast and slightly milder in the upper 50s. Sunday should bring a mix of sunshine and clouds around the mid-50s. And as of now, it's looking like it should be dry throughout this weekend. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from BrickBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Meg Ryan is the romantic comedy icon who could also be your best friend, who you might also fall in love with. The first time we met, we hated each other. No, you didn't hate me. I hated you. The second time we met, you didn't even remember me. I did, too. I remembered you. The third time we met, we became friends. We were friends for a long time. When Harry Met Sally has a happily ever after, a staple feature of the rom-com genre. But Meg Ryan's newest film, which she directs and stars in, goes beyond that to imagine what happens later when a couple revisits what drove them apart decades after their split. You left. You let go. This behavior, this is exactly why we broke up. So basically, my personality. Yes. This is not at all how I imagine our reunion. Oh, you imagine this? That's David Duchovny as Bill and Ryan as Willa. Despite the character's romantic history, Meg Ryan told me what happens later isn't really a rom-com. This is really a love story with romantic comedy elements. You know, it has banter, it has some of those things, but then it, it, it takes turns I think you might not necessarily expect Ryan took a lot of what she understands about love stories from her long professional relationship with the late writer and director Nora Ephron. She says Ephron felt the best love stories reflect the realities of the time they take place in. So it feels natural that What Happens Later features a former couple trapped in an airport together. Ryan adapted the story from a play during the COVID lockdowns. 
I was wondering, you know, you're locked down with one person. If you had the opportunity, would you would you work out some of the things you hadn't worked out in the past with an ex, or would you let that opportunity go? And so anyway, all those questions were swirling around when I first got the the play. I mean, there is dialogue that I, I really feel like could have almost been pulled from real-life conversations, like about him not connecting with his Gen Z boss, about rock music getting worse, about whether everything in society is getting worse. How much of this was drawn from real-life conversations that you were having during that period? Well, once we, you know, had the idea that he was a catastrophic thinker and she was a magical one, then we were off to the races in terms of setting up a conflict. And love stories are really about obstacles, right? So once we were able to polarize them like that, then it felt like real life could feed, you know, a lot of the characterization. Like, so he's a sort of like conservative pragmatist and she's a kind of woo-woo thinker and magical thinker. And you could maybe say that those were some polarized opposites that we have now, too. The characters in this movie are in their 50s, and you don't normally see romantic comedies or romance movies that are about characters in that age. And they they are not shy about talking about age and aging. What parts of aging did you want to show us on screen that often get overlooked or that we just don't see in our, our entertainment? I think it's really perspective. You know, like these two people are looking back on a life that they did not live together. And they're asking, you know, kind of cogent questions, like summary questions about why why didn't you love me enough? What did I get wrong? And their lives are a result of a lot of misunderstanding. They're reacting to each other for, you know, these 20 years, and they haven't had their facts straight. You know, she assumed that he was at fault, and she blames him, and then she learns otherwise, right? So it isn't necessarily about aging it's about a perspective you gain as a mature person. Hmm. I read somewhere that originally you weren't planning to play Willa, but then decided to step in after a funding issue. And the energy that she has is so different than the minute detail that a director has to focus on. Are there things that you did during the production of this film that made it easier for you to shift between these two very different mindsets? Really, it was about preparation. As a director, there's very specific stages where different things are required of you. There's pre-production, and you're super organized, and you're you are trying to you know keep your crew inspired, have the set run in a way that it is a fun place to be, a light place to be. It's a comedy you're doing after all. You're spending all this time setting the stage, and then you have the experience acting in it. Like you, 21 days of what felt like real freedom, especially with an actor like David, who's a real partner. And then there's this whole after, you know, the post-production where you're handing the movie off, like in stages to all these other artists. I, I cried when the movie was over. I had had such a good time. And so there's a, a marveling and a magic through the whole thing as you pass it off to different groups of people. And I feel like you can really feel it in, in when you see the movie because it unzips you a little bit, like it in terms of your heart. I want to talk a little bit about romance stories and love stories, first of all, because I love them. But one of the things that I've always thought must be sort of weird about starring in them is that you sort of wind up in a perpetual state of happily ever afters. You find love and that's that. And we know that life is not like that in reality. How has playing these types of roles 
affected the way that you personally think about love? Well, I don't really think of it that way, actually, but I do think that there's a myth around happily ever after that is worthy of reexamination. And like, in this case, they have an unresolvable or seemingly unresolvable back and forth. They're connecting and disconnecting and connecting and disconnecting. I've had that, so I understand that. But these guys are in a perpetual state of that and leave it to them to mess up the end. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of feel like about them that they will kind of screw it up in perpetuity. And that's the shape of how they love each other. And it's not logical. I recognize that too, that love isn't isn't logical. This this movie sort of reimagines the broken heart too. And when they first see each other in the movie, they don't want to. There's no, they don't even want to meet cute. <laughs> they don't even want to meet because they know. And they knew each other long ago. There's an essence that they have in common that they'll never not have in common. So whether or not that's a resolvable with a traditional happy ending, I don't think so. I think it's a different, something different than we are used to thinking of when it comes to happily ever after. When I watched this movie, so much of it for me and what I took away was about being at peace with where you are in life and accepting what did and didn't happen for you and appreciating Mm. the things that did happen for you. And that is a piece that is not easily found. But watching this movie made me wonder if you feel in your life that you found it. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. In some ways, some some places, some aspects of my life, yes. I, like, I love my life right now. So, But um, my brother sent me this really interesting thing that Martha Graham said that to be an artist, you're just never satisfied, that you, in fact, have a kind of divine dissatisfaction and that that is something that you can welcome because it keeps you marching and it keeps you more alive than the rest. And I feel that, and I like the company that you keep when you're with other artists who, you know, don't have answers but have compelling questions. That's a cool place to be and a peaceful place to be, actually. Meg Ryan, her new film is What Happens Later. It's in theaters now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. When emergency services deploy to respond to various types of disasters, an important part of most teams are the canines searching for people who are trapped, dead or alive. How dogs do that, coming up in about five minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. Boston sports teams get the night off tonight, but they're back at work tomorrow. Celtics will be in Brooklyn tomorrow night to play the Nets. The Bruins will be in Detroit to take on the Red Wings. The Patriots are at Gillette on Sunday to host the Washington Commanders. Forecast tonight, cloudy, windy, a little bit milder, about the mid-40s. Tomorrow, gray skies, slightly milder, temperatures in the upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. And Greener You, working throughout New England to integrate climate action into the entire construction process for a fossil-free future. Learn more at GreenerU.com. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden pointed out how important it is to live your life so that you never, ever get mentioned on our show. You know how bad a first date is when it becomes a news story? (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. It's too late for all the people we'll be talking about on this week's news quiz. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The leader of the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah spoke for the first time since Hamas militants attacked Israel nearly a month ago. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports the question now is whether they will join their allies Hamas in its war with Israel. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah indicated the group isn't yet ready to engage in an all-out war, but he warned all options remain on the table. The militia has been active on the Lebanese border with Israel, with slowly escalating attacks on Israeli forces. Nasrallah said the objective of these attacks was to draw Israeli military resources away from Gaza. He issued a pretty stark warning to the United States, calling on it to pressure Israel to stop the war on Gaza. And he said, if the US doesn't do this, it could risk causing a regional war. He said the degree to which Hezbollah intervenes militarily depends in large part on what happens in Gaza. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. On Capitol Hill, the Senate has finally confirmed top military officers for the Navy, Air Force and the Marine Corps, but... As NPR's Amy Held tells us, one Republican senator's ongoing protest forced each one to be voted on separately. Republican senators are planning a closed-door meeting next week to discuss their Alabama cohort's roadblock. Since February, they've tried unsuccessfully to persuade Senator Tommy Tuberville to end his objection and revive the process of taking up nominations in batches. He says he won't budge until the Pentagon's abortion policy is addressed. NPR's Amy Held Meanwhile, Democrats in the Senate say a bill passed by the House yesterday to deliver $14 billion in military aid to Israel will be dead on arrival because the bill ties the funding for Israel to billions of dollars in cuts to the Internal Revenue Service. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The bus driver in the fatal crash of a Brandeis University shuttle one year ago is being charged with motor vehicle homicide and speeding. Jean Fenelon of Boston was arraigned today. The Middlesex DA's office alleges that Fenelon was driving erratically and speeding last November when the bus crashed into two trees. 25-year-old Brandeis undergraduate Vanessa Mark was killed. Her parents have filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Fenelon and the Medford bus company that employed him. President Biden and First Lady Jill visited Lewiston, Maine this afternoon to help the community heal after the mass shooting that killed 18 people and wounded 13 others last week. They met with the survivors and the victims' families. The president and First Lady also met with first responders. Afterward, Biden said the violence opens a painful wound across the country. Too many Americans have lost loved ones or survived the trauma of gun violence. I know because Jill and I have met with them in Buffalo, in Uvalde, in Monterey Park, in Sandy Hook, and all, I've done, anyway, too many to count. The president and first lady visited the bowling alley and the lounge where the gunman attacked. 
The United Auto Workers agreement with Jeep maker Stellantis comes at a cost for dozens of workers here in Massachusetts. As part of the deal, the Stellantis facility in Mansfield will be shutting down in 2025. Regional Union Representative Brandon Mancia says the 40 to 50 workers in Mansfield will have the right to transfer to a new parts distribution facility in New York. Folks are going to have um, you know, job security and transfer rights guaranteed, so no one is uh, losing a job. Uh, but the specific plant in Mansfield will will be um, shutting down. Mancia says some of those workers may be eligible for retirement packages that are currently being negotiated. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston is Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah, three performances November 24th through 26th. HandelandHyden.org. 52 degrees now should drop to about the mid-40s overnight tonight. Not too chilly. Tomorrow, the gray from tonight will stay. Temperatures will head toward about 60 degrees. Then Sunday, pulling back to the mid-50s. Partly sunny skies on Sunday. Still a few clouds around. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics. The Persian Version is a new comedy by Mariam Keshavars on the differences of two cultures when a woman's secret is revealed to her eccentric immigrant family, now playing only in theaters. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Scott Tetra. You want to do the letter? We'll do his uh, least favorites, the seesaw back here. Come here. Next to a Maryland industrial yard, a black lab named Parker is working his way through an agility course. Over. Good boy. Come. Up the hill from the course, there are piles of rubble with overturned boats and busted up buses. There are concrete and plastic tubes all over, all big enough to hide people in, which is key because Parker and dozens of other dogs look like they're having a great time, but they're here to practice a serious job, how to find people trapped after disasters. Whenever there's a hurricane or a wildfire or an earthquake or any other mass casualty event, FEMA sends teams of trained dogs in to help find people, dead or alive. And Victoria Ledwell and other coordinators make sure that they're ready on any moment's notice. So glad to have you guys here. Welcome. We got a lot of work to do today. Ledwell is the canine coordinator for FEMA's Maryland Task Force One, a group of Maryland-based dogs and their handlers. Many of the handlers are like Ledwell, current or former firefighters who just love dogs. A dozen people are sitting in a circle of plastic chairs as Ledwell ticks through her checklist of updates before the training starts. A reminder about getting veterinary services. Ledwell's a handler herself. She's on to her second dog, Pasquale, after a good run with another pooch named Fonzie. We're looking for dogs who have a high nerve strength and high drive, very biddable, very smart. and You're saying biddable? Biddable, meaning I can ask them to do a chore or a task, and they're like, yeah, I want to do that. Most of the dogs in this Maryland cohort are known as the P team. As puppies, they were all given names that start with P because they all came from the same breeder. But FEMA insists dogs can and do come from all over. And once a dog is identified with that energy and drive, the training begins. Like anything else, one step at a time. And we start to build on that. All right, you showed interest in the scent. Now we're going to see if we can get you to 
bark at that scent and then we're going to reward that and we can keep expounding on that and make it a bigger and bigger problem until they're able to not only say, okay, I'm looking for live human scent, I'm going to use my nose, I'm going to find it, then I'm going to bark when I find it to indicate that I found it. We can do that all on the ground in a small scale, but then we can build on that. We Just like any dog, the thing they're working for is a toy. So I can speak for myself at home. My Labrador Pasquale will play with every toy. I call him Pass, and he loves every toy. But when he's working, he only gets one specific toy. It's a tug. He decided that was the best toy in the world. He loves that toy. He only gets it as a reward when he's searching. So does the toy come with when they're on an actual deployment? Then? Yes. So toys go into pockets. You'll work in a vest. And absolutely, toys come along. And they get rewarded when they find their source. Some handlers are lucky their canine partners picked a toy that's easy to carry, but that's not always the case. My last dog had what we call the flying squirrel. It was like a floppy frisbee, and it didn't fit well into pockets, but it didn't matter that it was hard for me to carry because for him that was important. You just had to make it work. I have to make it work. Dogs can latch onto the faintest scent of humans inside rubble because of their super-powered noses. And the system that allows them to smell... It's by comparison way bigger than ours. In our noses, we just have this really small area of tissue up inside our head where odorant molecules can be absorbed and recognized by our bodies. And in dogs, that's taking up a large portion of the inside of their snout. So they just have a much larger surface area that's able to detect odorant molecules. That's Erin Hecht, the director of the Canine Brains Project at Harvard. She also says the way dogs process smell allows them to search for survivors or bodies in ways that people just can't. So they're just pre-wired for odor processing in a way that our brains aren't. Dogs' heightened sense of smell helps them get the job done. But a good candidate for search and rescue has to have drive and energy. That's one reason why so many of the dogs training in Maryland are Labradors. So Pager is a urban search and rescue dog that detects live human scent. He thinks that microphone is a toy, probably. (laughs) This is Pager. He has a little bit of a different story than the other dogs, though, because he was donated to a Puppies Behind Bars program. That's Pager's handler, Joshua Curland. He's a firefighter when he's not working with FEMA's Maryland dog team, and he says he was first drawn to working with canines at the fire academy. I should, probably should have been paying attention to my fire skills, but I saw canine handlers over in the background working, and I was like, oh, the fire department has canines, so... Curlin ended up with Pager because Pager flunked out of Puppies Behind Bars. Him and his sister were trained by prisoners to go to uh, various programs, like police programs, wounded veterans programs, and both him and his sister... Uh, were a little too rambunctious, a little bit too high drive and high energy to uh, work out in that program. So they both got sent back to the kennel in Maine. I don't know what you mean by high energy. Yeah, yeah. You just saw <laughs> we watch as Curland and Pager go through their drills. Here, but, uh, I'm going to direct them around the bases. We see Pager running around a field laid out a little like a baseball diamond. There are wooden platforms where each base would be. And Pager is sprinting, tongue flapping in the breeze, from platform to platform, and then jumping on them and pausing. He's following Curlin's commands, allegedly. Pager, up, up. Uh-uh, back. Pager. Curlin says Pager's struggling with focus just a little today, but he still got the job done. Good boy. There's another regular drill called bark barrels. And we got a dog who's warming up now. We saw them as soon as we arrived. Long black plastic tunnels, big enough for a person to fit inside. There's three of them, and they all have a wooden barrier in front with a small opening just big enough to fit a dog's snout into. Someone hides inside, but only inside one of them. Want to go to work? Come on. 
The dog has to figure out which barrel. Okay, they're closing me in with a piece of wood. So, producer Erica Ryan climbs into the middle one to test the skills of Parker, the first dog we had met on the agility course. All right, I'm just waiting to see who's going to come save me. Search! So, Parker immediately went to the tunnel that Erica's in. Now he's... He's focused, he's barking, he's sniffing. Find him, huh? Did you get him out of there? Get him, get him, get him. Oh, that's a good job. Now, one final drill. A simulation of what you might find after an earthquake. So this is a pretty uh, serious simulator rubble. I mean, we've got piles of concrete here. We've got some overturned boats there. I see some um, broken down buses in the back. Do you use all of this for different simulations? We do. We do. We're trying to simulate what a collapsed building would be like. And now Curland and Pager are up to tackle the rubble. All right, Pager's on the pile. He's kind of roaming the perimeter here. Pager's struggling a little, but there are a lot of unusual smells with the crowd of people watching. So we know he's getting closer. Oh, colder. Okay, now he just did a loop of the tube that we know somebody's in, making his way back. So he was right there, but now he has looped and gone in the other direction. Curlin and Pager keep practicing, just like their teammates. Soon, dogs from around the region will come here for a certification test to see whether or not they'll qualify for another three years in the program. If they pass, they'll keep training. Keep practicing and waiting for the call to deploy to the next big disaster. You're listening to All Things Considered. The bipartisan infrastructure law isn't just building projects for people. $200 million have been set aside to reopen spawning grounds for native fish to help them better weather climate change. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel reports. At an overlook near the Truckee River in Nevada, nearly 100 people recently gathered for a groundbreaking ceremony for a project designed to help native fish get past the Numana Dam. As a kid, James Phoenix fished this river, catching kwiwi, a type of sucker that is only found here. Bringing them to shore and then cutting filleting them, that was what my dad had taught me, and I got to experience that's how he was taught when he was young. Now, Phoenix is chairman of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. They refer to themselves as kwiwi takata in their native language, which means the kwiwi eaters. But tribal members stopped catching them back in the 1980s as the fish population plummeted. A big reason is the dam Phoenix is overlooking today. Built more than 100 years ago to divert river water to the reservation for farming and ranching, it's been a barrier for migration of the endangered kwiwi and threatened Lahontan cutthroat trout, another fish crucial to the tribe. Phoenix says the previous tribal council discussed removing or modifying the dam but kept running into the same hurdle. A lot of funds weren't available. Now there are. The tribe is getting more than $8 million from the bipartisan infrastructure law to build a large underwater ramp stretching from bank to bank so fish can swim up and over the dam. Reopening 65 miles of river for fish migration will help preserve the tribe's culture, Phoenix says, and more. 
It's important to our economics. You know, we rely on tourism and fishing, so we get a lot of anglers that are coming in seasonally, so it's really big for us. Shiva Sundarasan with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says restoring spawning habitat comes at a crucial time for native fish. As climate changes in places we're seeing uh, changes in snowpack, changes in the timing of when you have snow melt, changing water temperatures, all of that is definitely uh, affecting fish populations, fish habitat. The project here on the Numana Dam north of Reno is one of dozens nationwide funded by the infrastructure law. That include helping to recover Yellowstone and Rio Grande cutthroat in Idaho and New Mexico, Bear River cutthroat in Wyoming and Utah, and flannel mouth sucker in Utah, among others. The more I think we can restore these ecosystems, allow fish to migrate up and down the streams, have habitat where they can find refuge when you know, water temperatures rise, the better we will be at, at, at protecting and restoring, conserving these fish populations. Modifying the dam here will allow up to 600,000 kiwi to swim over the diversion dam to new spawning grounds. Historically, they move in large numbers at the same time and they back up behind this current design. Lisa Hakey is a Reno-based project leader with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Now with this uh, gradient structure downstream, it's designed specifically for kiwi swimming capacity and speed. Tribal chairman James Phoenix says the Pyramid Lake Paiutes are excited to finally see shovels break ground on a decades-long effort to recover their native fish. It's historical, it's big for us, and it's part of our existence. You know, it signifies us as uh, Numu people here at the Pyramid Lake Paiutrek. He's looking forward to the day when the Kiwi population is big enough for tribal members to catch, fillet, and eat them once again. For NPR News, I'm Caleb Radel in Reno. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Israel's ground war in Gaza and what the outside world is learning from satellite images and social media posts. Also, a shortage of school bus drivers means some districts are having to cut back on transportation services. What some companies are doing to fill the gap tonight at 6.30 here at 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting. Fall event through mid-November with antique and modern handmade rugs. Boston, Salem, Framingham, and LandryandArcari.com. No sports action tonight. Celtics will be in Brooklyn tomorrow night to play the Nets. Bruins will be in Detroit to take on the Red Wings. Looks like we're going to have a mainly gray first weekend of November. Tonight, clouds move in. Winds pick up. Temperatures should fall back to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, the gray will stay. Temperatures heading up toward 60. Sunday, pulling back to the mid-50s with partly sunny skies. Still some clouds around. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Sunbug Solar committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Cher has a confession about her voice. I'm not a Cher fan. I'm pretty good on stage, though, and I'm really funny, but not a big fan. 
Well, plenty of people are. Cher on her music and her first ever Christmas album. That and all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. One of the fastest growing college sports is women's wrestling. The newest team is in Montgomery, Alabama at Huntington College. It's the state's only collegiate women's wrestling team. Joseph King with the Gulf States Newsroom was at the season's opener. In a gym packed with fans, family, and recruits, the Huntington Hawks give the crowd a look at their 2023 wrestling team. I love competing. I love working hard. Tristan Robinson is a freshman at Huntington from Dothan, Alabama. She says she loves the intensity that wrestling brings and that feeling of exhaustion. And I like feeling like I'm dying sometimes. And then being able to, at the end of it, being like, I just did that and I'm proud of myself for that. Robinson credits her father for her love of the sport. He started the wrestling team at her high school, and now he's here cheering on his daughter. I'm really looking forward to their competitions and, and seeing how they stack up against the, the girls in the conference and the girls in, within the, the rest of the United States, you know. There are about 150 women's wrestling teams at colleges and universities in North America, but not many in the Deep South. Robinson's dad wants the sport to take off. Yeah, I want everybody to get on board and, and, and you know, just like they would for Alabama football. This is homecoming weekend for Huntington College, and these wrestling matches are a preview, not only for fans, but potential recruits. There were more than 15 for the women's team alone. Head coach Lillian Humphreys has been here for two years. She spent her first recruiting and is excited to finally show off the team. And she says the college has shown its support from day one. A lot of these girls that are coming in don't have the same equal opportunity as the men's and locker rooms included. They a lot of times have to go use the bathroom in the hallway. At Huntingdon, I got hired on June 1st of 2022, and by June 9th of that year, um, they started building our women's locker room. It kind of makes sense that Humphreys is leading the first collegiate women's wrestling team in Alabama. She was on the first Division I women's wrestling team in the country. Like many of the women she coaches, Humphreys says she had a lot of support from her family when she wrestled in high school. I was hesitant at first because I was the only girl on my team. Um, by the end of the day, I thought it would be a good opportunity for me, so I took it. One of the wrestlers who also took that opportunity is freshman Shantisha Tad. She stumbled into her love for wrestling during her senior year in high school after encouragement from her soccer coach, who turned into her wrestling coach. She says she loves the independence that comes with wrestling. I like that if I lose, I'm not going to put it on anybody else. I know it's me and that's something I have to work on personally. And when I win, no one can take it from me because it's not like, oh, I did this. That's why you got this. It's I went out there, I competed, I won for myself. Taff says she may only see one or two black girls like her on a team. And there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. I feel the need to prove myself more. At the same time, she wants to encourage black girls to try wrestling, to get on the mat. Stay true to yourself, know who you are, no matter where you go or who you're around, never change yourself. Like, know who you are as a person and stand by that 100%. The Huntington Hawks will get a chance to prove themselves on November 11th. That's when they have their first college match against the Life University Eagles in Georgia. For NPR News, I'm Joseph King in Montgomery, Alabama. 
Visual artists have been fighting back against artificial intelligence companies that they say steal their works to train AI models. They've launched class action lawsuits, spoken out at government hearings, and now, as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, they're using tools that contaminate and confuse the AI systems themselves. Nightshade won't help artists combat existing AI models that have already been trained on their creative works. But Ben Zhao, who leads the University of Chicago team that built the soon-to-be-launched tool, says it promises to break future AI models. You can think of Nightshade as adding a small poison pill inside an artwork in such a way that it's literally trying to confuse the training model on what is actually in the image. AI models like DALI and Stable Diffusion usually identify images through the words used to describe them in the metadata. For instance, a picture of a dog pairs with the word dog. Zhao says Nightshade confuses this pairing by creating a mismatch between image and text. So it will take an image of a dog, alter it in subtle ways so that it still looks like a dog to you and I, Except to the AI, it now looks like a cat. Zhao says he hopes Nightshade could pollute future AI models to such a degree that AI companies will be forced to stop using artists' works to create new models. I would like to bring about a world where AI has limits, guardrails, AI has ethical boundaries that are enforced by tools. Nightshade isn't the only nascent weapon in an artist's AI-disrupting arsenal. Zhao's team also recently launched Glaze. The tool subtly changes the pixels in an artwork to make it hard for an AI model to mimic a specific artist's style. And then there's spawning AI's Kuduru. It tracks scrapers' IP addresses and blocks them or sends back unwanted content. Artist Kelly McKernan says they cannot wait to get their hands on these tools. I'm just like, let's go. Let's poison the data sets. Let's do this. <laughs> the Nashville-based painter and illustrator has been waging a war on AI since last year, when they discovered their name was being used as an AI prompt, and then that more than 50 of their paintings had been scraped for AI models. Early in 2023, McKernan joined a class action lawsuit alleging Stability AI and other such companies used billions of online images to train their systems without compensation or consent. The case is ongoing. I am right in the middle of it, along with so many artists. In the meantime, McKernan says the new digital tools help them feel like they're doing something aggressive and immediate to safeguard their work in a world of slow-moving lawsuits and legislation. For now, this is kind of like... All right, my house keeps getting broken into, so I'm going to protect myself with like some mace and like an axe or something. These type of defenses seem to be effective against many things right now. Gautam Kamath researches data privacy and AI model robustness at Canada's University of Waterloo. But there's no kind of guarantee that they'll still be effective a year from now, heck, even a week from now, we don't know for sure. Social media platforms have lit up lately with heated debates questioning how effective these tools really are. The biggest AI industry players, Google, Meta, OpenAI and Stability AI, did not respond to NPR's requests for comment. But Jacine Janite of the AI developer platform Hugging Face says that even if these tools work really well, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. We see them as very much a positive development. Janite says data should be broadly available for research and development, but AI companies should also respect artists' wishes to opt out of having their work scraped. So any tool that is going to allow artists to express their consent very much fits with our approach of trying to get as many perspectives into what makes a training dataset. Janite says several artists whose works were used to train AI models shared on the Hugging Face platform have spoken out against the practice and in some cases asked that the models be removed. 
the developers don't have to comply. But we found that developers tend to respect their artists' wishes and remove those models. Still, many artists don't trust AI companies' opt-out programs. They don't all offer them, and those that do often don't make the process easy. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways in select theaters today, everywhere November 10th. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side-by-side, including options that offer same-day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. So much for the sunshine of the week. Clouds are moving in tonight. Should be windy, a little bit milder than it has been around the mid-40s. Tomorrow, overcast and slightly milder. Temperatures in the upper 50s. Then Sunday, a mix of sunshine and clouds right about the mid-50s. As of now, it's looking like the weekend should be dry. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel has claimed responsibility for an airstrike near the largest hospital in Gaza. The military says it targeted an ambulance that was being used by Hamas. The Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza says the vehicle was a medical convoy traveling to the Rafah border crossing. It's Friday, November 3rd. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, what satellite images and social media posts are revealing about the ground war in Gaza. Cornell University canceled classes today due to what it's calling the extraordinary stress its campus has been under as one of its students, a junior, has been federally charged with making violent anti-Semitic threats against Jewish people. Also ahead, the music legend who played with Dylan, the Stones, the Who, and many more. Tonight, Al Cooper of Somerville is getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll talk with him. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. An Israeli airstrike hit near the front of the largest hospital in Gaza City, killing at least 13 people and wounding dozens more. 
That's according to Palestinians. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Israel acknowledges the bombing but says the target was Hamas. Palestinians at Al-Shifa Hospital say the attack took place as a convoy of ambulances was transporting seriously injured people to Gaza's southern border. From there, they were to cross into Egypt for treatment. Israel said it carried out the airstrike because a, quote, Hamas terrorist cell was using the ambulances for cover. Israel said Hamas members were killed, but didn't say how many. The head of Al-Shifa Hospital said 13 people died and dozens were hurt. Thousands of Palestinians are on the hospital ground seeking shelter. Israel says that Hamas intentionally operates near such sensitive sites. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Testimony from former President Donald Trump's two sons about their role in the family business operations is wrapped up in New York. Eric Trump on the stand for a second day, testifying he relied primarily on accountants and lawyers to verify financial reports. The civil business fraud case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James has focused on whether Trump inflated the value of his assets in order to obtain favorable loan terms. Trump himself is expected to take the stand in the trial next week. Trump, along with his sons Eric and Don Jr., have denied any wrongdoing. A man who served as a political appointee in the Trump State Department has been sentenced to nearly six years in prison for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Ryan Lucas has the latest on the sentencing of Federico Klein. Klein worked as a political appointee in the State Department's Office of Brazilian and Southern Cone Affairs during the Trump administration. He was convicted in July of assault and other felony charges related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Klein was on the front lines of one of the most violent episodes of that day, the hand-to-hand fighting between Trump supporters and police in a tunnel on the Capitol's Lower West Terrace. Now, Judge Trevor McFadden, a Trump appointee, has sentenced Klein to five years and 10 months in prison. More than 1,100 people have been arrested so far in connection with the U.S. Capitol attack. Some 400 have been sentenced to prison time. Ryan Lucas, NPR News. A major grant to update and improve more than 41 U.S. ports is being awarded. The $653 million made possible by the Biden administration's bipartisan trillion-dollar infrastructure improvement measure that was signed into law in 2021. The infrastructure bill includes money to facilitate increased shipping traffic and help lower costs for consumers. Wall Street wrapped up its best week of the year as the Fed held interest rates steady this week. The Dow jumped 222 points, the Nasdaq up 184 points. This is NPR. There appears to be increasing evidence Beijing is helping cash-strap North Korea evade international sanctions that are aimed at reining in the country's nuclear program. China has long maintained it enforces sanctions, but international authorities point to growing evidence of help to the North via Chinese middlemen. That includes the laundering of proceeds from North Korean hacker cyber heists. North Korea has claimed the U.S.-led sanctions are strangling its economy. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is inducting its class of 2023 tonight. Kabir Badia from member station WKSU reports the ceremony will be held in New York City. George Michael is among the long eligible acts being honored at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, along with Willie Nelson. It was the time of the preacher. Shaka Khan. And Kate Bush. Acts can be inducted 25 years after the release of their first record. Elton John will induct his longtime co-writer, Bernie Taupin, and two acts from the 90s made the cut this year, Sheryl Crow and Rage Against the Machine. 
The diverse slate was chosen before Rock Hall Foundation board member Jan Wenner made comments critical of black and female performers. He was subsequently dismissed. For NPR News, I'm Kabir Bhatia in Cleveland. Crude oil futures prices gained back some of their gains on the week amid supply worries with the situation volatile in the Mideast. Oil fell 2.4% to settle at 80.51 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. President Biden and the First Lady were in Lewiston, Maine this afternoon to meet with survivors and families of the victims of last week's mass shooting. They also met with first responders. Just after, Biden spoke about the need for stronger gun laws. Because regardless of our politics, this is about protecting our freedom to go to a bowling alley, a restaurant, a school, a church, without being shot and killed. The president and first lady went to the bowling alley and the lounge where 18 people were killed and more than a dozen others hurt. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling on the Biden administration to do more to evacuate Americans who are stuck in Gaza. That includes a family from Plymouth with three small children. In a letter to the president's national security advisor, the Massachusetts Democrats are also calling for the unconditional release of Hamas-held hostages and for increased humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza. Former Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis turns 90 today. As WBR's Amanda Beeland reports, the state is still trying to comply with a housing law Governor Dukakis signed some 40 years ago. Phil Johnston served as the Secretary of Human Services under the governor. His term started in 1984, just after Dukakis signed the Right to Shelter law. It guarantees housing for families who need it. When we started, there were exactly three state-funded shelters in Massachusetts. When we left office eight years later, there were 105. And um, I was very proud to work for him. Johnston says Dukakis is the most decent human being and the best public servant he's ever met. He says he'll be known in the years to come for both. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Governor Maura Healey has capped the number of families that will be helped under the law. She says the state does not have the resources to meet the, the demand. Massachusetts took in less tax revenue last month than expected. The Department of Revenue reported today the state collected just over $2.5 billion. That's $186 million less than anticipated. For the first four months of the fiscal year that began in July, the state collected about $355 million short of what was expected. And Nova Scotia today announced the selection of the tree it will give to Boston as its annual Christmas gift. The 45-foot white spruce will be cut down later this month and shipped to Boston. It will then be decorated and adorn the Boston Common for the holiday season. It's Nova Scotia's way of thanking Boston for sending firefighting help after the deadly explosion in Halifax Harbor in 1917. 52 degrees now. Clouds are on the move. They should collect overnight tonight and settle in for the weekend. Not too cold tonight in mid-40s. Tomorrow still overcast, but turning a bit milder, close to 60. And for Sunday, some sunshine should burn through the clouds. Temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. It's 6.09. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. 
The ground war in Gaza is intensifying as it enters its second week. Israeli officials say that 25 soldiers have died so far. Meanwhile, Gaza's health ministry says nearly 200 Palestinian civilians were killed in an airstrike at a refugee camp on Tuesday. Speaking today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken expressed concern over the growing number of casualties. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. We've been clear that as Israel conducts its campaign to defeat Hamas, how it does so matters. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has been looking into the details of Israel's campaign on the ground in Gaza and joins us now. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Jeff, let's talk about what's happening on the ground there right now. What do we know? The Israeli military has pushed into the Gaza Strip from three points, two from the north and one cutting all the way across the middle of the Strip. And in doing so, it's encircled Gaza City. Now, before the war, Gaza City was home to a little over half a million people. It was the largest city in the territory. The Israeli military says it's also a Hamas stronghold filled with tunnels and weapons caches. I spoke to Sean McFarland, a retired U.S. Army general, and he said surrounding an enemy is a pretty standard tactic in urban warfare. They're setting the conditions there to go into the city, but first they have to kind of close off the perimeter. Okay, and Jeff, if Israeli forces go into Gaza City, what could that look like? Well, we've had a look at satellite imagery from the commercial company Planet, and it shows armored vehicles parked in these areas cleared by Israeli bulldozers at different points on the edge of the city. But McFarland and other experts we showed the images to say this doesn't look like an occupation force. There just aren't enough troops to really take control of the entire city. Instead, McFarland thinks part of the force will prevent Hamas fighters from entering and leaving while other troops go into the city and strike at Hamas targets in limited raids. I mean, Jeff, what could that kind of fight that you're describing there mean for the civilians who are trapped in Gaza City? It's not good. Urban warfare like this is very brutal. It can kill a lot of civilians. And from what we can see on social media, it seems like current Israeli rules of engagement allow significant civilian casualties. I spoke to Mark Garlasco, a former U.M. war crimes investigator, and he says this is quite different than earlier battles Israel has fought in Gaza. The Israelis obviously have a a higher tolerance for civilian casualties in this conflict than we've seen in prior conflicts. And I think the reason for that is they believe that this is an existential conflict. And Garlasco brought up that airstrike you mentioned earlier as an example. Israel says it killed a top Hamas leader, but doing so meant dropping bombs in an area filled with civilians. I mean, to that point, the stories that we are hearing out of Gaza already are terrible. And yet, from what you are describing, it sounds like this could really just be the beginning. Is there any way to protect innocent people? Well, the U.S. has called for a humanitarian pause in the fighting to allow aid to come in. So far, Israel doesn't seem even remotely interested in that. But Garlasco says it may face more international pressure the longer this ground offensive goes on, because international law requires them to minimize civilian casualties. Even though Hamas may violate the laws of war, it doesn't mean that Israel can, right? And while Israel has a right to defend itself, that right is not unlimited. In particular, Garlasco says that Israeli strikes need to be proportionate, meaning that the military benefits are worth the civilian harm. The U.N. is already echoing this concern. Earlier this week, they warned that the strike at the refugee camp could amount to war crimes because of questions of proportionality. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thank you. Thank you.
Tensions are running high on some college campuses in light of the Israeli-Hamas war. And today, Cornell University in New York canceled all classes. Earlier this week, a student was arrested for allegedly threatening violent attacks against Jewish students at the college. Ava Pukach of member station WRVO has been reporting this story and joins us now. Hi, Ava. Hi. Okay, so just walk us through what has been happening on campus at Cornell that made the administration take a pretty unusual step, right? Canceling all classes? So Cornell President Martha Pollack called for a community day today in recognition of the extraordinary stress of the past few weeks with the Israeli-Hamas war breaking out. And there's a high number of Jewish students at Cornell, a little bit more than 20%. And some of them have family being affected by the conflict. And in addition to that, Sunday evening, a series of violent threats were made against the university's Jewish students. And one message specifically targeted 104 West, the university's kosher dining hall, run by the Center for Jewish Living. The suspect, Patrick Dye, allegedly said he was going to shoot up that building. Mm. Dye's a 21-year-old student, and he was arrested Tuesday. What's been the reaction so far of the students on campus? Like, what are you hearing from them? So there had been earlier rallies on campus in support of Palestinians and Israelis, but this latest incident at Cornell has made some students fearful. There's been an increased police presence on campus since the threats were made. Earlier today, I spoke with Molly Goldstein. She's the president of the Center for Jewish Living at Cornell. I think I would just say, you know, one line, that we are scared, but we are strong and we are proud to be Jewish. Molly Goldstein says they've received tremendous support from the Jewish community internationally with gift baskets and food showing up. She mentioned they had 200 students and some faculty members who came to the center last night to show their support. And she says they're doing well and are not going to hide just because of hate. Hmm. Well, I know that the governor in New York, Kathy Hochul, I know that she visited the campus, has talked about the situation throughout this week. Tell us what she's been saying. Hogel says hate speech and anti-Semitism is on the rise and says the state of New York is not going to tolerate that. She says it's not just a problem at Cornell, but it's growing on a number of campuses and seen most acutely in the City University of New York. She asked a former chief judge of the state to conduct a study of anti-Semitic incidents at CUNY schools to see if policies or procedures need to be changed to help curb hate speech. And she hopes the recommendations could provide a roadmap for other universities in the state. And has called this a reckoning for New Yorkers. I'm calling on New Yorkers to stand up for each other. When you see a fellow student being harassed, stand up for them. Intercede. Help them. Let them know that that person does not represent our values as New Yorkers. And what do we know about the investigation of the student who was arrested earlier this week for threatening Jewish students? What's, what's going on there? Patrick Dye appeared in federal court in Syracuse Wednesday. The most he spoke was to say, yes, your honor. And because it was initial appearance, he did not enter a plea. Um, And he's being held without bail. And his next court appearance is set for November 15th. That is Ava Pukach of WRVO. Thank you so much, Ava. You're welcome. Instant ramen noodles have long been a staple for Americans short on time or cash or just for anyone who likes an easy treat like me. Nissen's popular cup noodles ramen has been available here in the U.S. for around 50 years. And until very recently, I didn't realize I've apparently been cooking them all wrong. 
The company announced this week, to my surprise and a lot of other people's surprise, that a new design will make the cup microwavable for the first time. Oops. Here to talk about the big change and so much more is John Kung, author of a new cookbook. It's called Kung Food, Chinese American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. Welcome to All Things Considered. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, we should start by noting that Nissen does say on the old packaging that it shouldn't be microwave, but be that as it may, I have to know, do you microwave your cup noodles in that styrofoam cup like I do? Or are you the kind of person who boils the water separate and then eats them that way? I think there is a little bit of a cultural difference in this way. So as we know, like the cup noodles were consumed originally in Asia, where we have hot water on the ready constantly in the form of like instant hot water kettles. So we never actually took the time to boil the noodles. We always had boiling water ready. So I don't think culturally speaking, we ever really microwaved our noodles over there. Do you have early memories of eating instant ramen? Was it a big part of your life? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Every night I used to like wake up in the middle of the night and just like fix myself up a snack of like all sorts of different kinds of cup noodles that they would have available over there. John, I will confess that I am among the millions of people that follow you on TikTok, though I will just say that (laughs) nothing that I make in my kitchen at home looks as good as when you do it. And one of the things that I really love about your videos is when you started sort of going rogue, putting your own twist on your ramen. When did you start doing that? I just started doing that because I wanted a reason to try different brands and different flavors of ramen. There are brands that are like based in Singapore and other parts of Southeast Asia that produce things like curry flavors or laksa flavors that are like really bright and bold and vibrant. So as an excuse for me to just like try a new one, I started a series of like how to upgrade them on YouTube. Give us some examples. How can we upgrade our ramen at home? One of the most basic ways that I like to upgrade my instant noodles is simply just like making the broth a little bit more uh, deep and velvety. And to do that is pretty easy. You can add just a mixture of cornstarch and water and adding that to boiling broth will make it a lot thicker, closer to the kinds that you'll get at the ramen shops. It won't be anywhere near as good, but every step closer to that, I'd say is in a step in the right direction. One of the things I still really like to do is add an egg or maybe some like baby bok choy or something like that. I guess, I don't know if I'm trying to make it healthy, but I feel like a little veggie kind of elevates it. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Whether it be vegetables or you can use herbs or you can use like aromatics such as scallions, onions, shallots, those all go really well in there. John, you are making my lunch and dinner decisions for the next few days very easy. Thank you for that. (laughs) Of course. John Kung is the author of a new cookbook. It's called Kung Food, Chinese American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is All Things Considered. 
from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. As of last year, about two-thirds of credit card customers enrolled in paperless billing in the supposed paperless age. How is the paper industry doing? That story coming up on Marketplace it starts at 6.30. A big jump on Wall Street to finish up the week. The Dow rose nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P picked up nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq grabbed the most territory. It rose one and four-tenths of a percent. The average price of home heating oil in Massachusetts is still on the way down. The latest State Department of Energy Resources survey has the average statewide price at 4.12 a gallon. That's 16 cents a gallon lower than last week and 45 cents lower than this time last year. It's 6.21. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Good news if you're heading to or from the Cape this weekend. All lanes of the Bourne Bridge are back open now since major renovation projects are finished. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers said today that repairs to the Cape Cod Bridge it maintains are complete two weeks ahead of schedule. The work began in mid-September. The state is trying to get funding to replace the aging Bourne and Sagamore bridges. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help veterans in the Northeast stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. Visit WBUR.org slash open meetings if you'd like to find out more. That's WBUR.org slash open meetings. Tonight, clouds move in, winds pick up, temperatures should fall to the mid-40s, not too chilly tonight. Tomorrow, the gray will stay. Temperatures head up toward 60 degrees. And then Sunday, pulling back to the mid-50s with partly sunny skies, still some clouds around. 51 degrees in in Boston at 623. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Tonight, musician Al Cooper will formally get his due. He'll be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and honored for his musical excellence. And what could be more excellent? Than this. That's Cooper on the organ, creating one of the signature sounds of a folk rock classic. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. Like a Rolling Stone launched Al Cooper's career, but the Hall of Fame is recognizing Cooper for his, quote, massive influence as a composer, multi-instrumentalist, singer, arranger, and producer. He formed Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and their hallmark sound heavy on the horns. He was part of the seminal blues project, known for its 1960s urban blues. Al Cooper has played with the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, John Lee Hooker, and way more. He's produced solo works by three of the four Beatles and by B.B. King. And he founded his own record label and was the first to sign Leonard Skinner. Turn it up. 
Al Cooper is now 79 years old and lives in Somerville. His fans think he's long overdue for the Hall of Fame. He says he's surprised and honored. His first hit came when he was 21 years old. It was 1965, and he co-wrote the pop tune This Diamond Ring, made famous by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. This diamond ring doesn't shine for me anymore. I don't particularly like it. You don't like the song? How come? No, I like the song. I don't like the record. Why not? Not my taste. (laughs) But you helped write it. Yes, but you know, you can have uh, different arrangements. I think a great example is uh, later on in my career, I recorded it the way that I imagined it. And uh, it don't sound like the Gary Lewis record. No, Gary Lewis, although you certainly got a lot of paychecks on that one. But let's hear now from the one that you recorded later, re-recorded, almost like the director's cut. Let's listen to this. This diamond ring don't shine for me anymore. This diamond ring don't mean what it did before. So if you've got some... What is it about this one that makes it the Al Cooper version? Uh, It's just R&B. It's not screaming like the Gary Lewis record. I'm white, I'm white, I'm white. (laughs) Well, you you are white, Al. I understand, but I just love black music. Cooper listened to black DJ Jocko Henderson on the radio when he was growing up in Brooklyn. Not long ago, he woke up in the middle of the night and turned on the old American gospel group, The Soul Stirrers. But Cooper's contributions to the American music scene, the ones that put him on the map, are in folk rock. The story of how he maneuvered his way into the studio when Bob Dylan was recording Like a Rolling Stone in 1965 is vintage. The producer invited Cooper to come to the control room to watch. Cooper was 21 years old and brought his guitar just in case. And so I got there early and I was sitting in the studio and Dylan came in with a guitar player and he sat down and started warming up. And I said, I don't have a chance here. My plan isn't going to work. But then Dylan decided the organ player should move to the piano. So they had to mic the piano. So while they were doing that, they gave the musicians a break and I went out in the studio and sat down at the organ because <laughs> I was ambitious. Yes, you were very ambitious. <laughs> and you sat down at the organ as if you had been invited, which you hadn't, but they sure liked what you did. We should say it was a Hammond organ. You were hoping at the time that it was still on because you didn't know how to turn it on. That is correct. And what happened when everyone in the studio, including Dylan, looked over and saw you there? Well, nothing until the producer said, okay, this is take four. That was kind of, in many ways, my start. And it became copied. Oh, yeah. I ended up playing on the rest of the album, so a lot of people heard it. And then people called me because they wanted that sound. Al Cooper became so sought after... In 1969, the Rolling Stones had him play organ and piano on You Can't Always Get What You Want. They let him listen to an early take. He thought the opening of the song needed something. So on his own, 
he recorded the French horn, and they used it. I made the part up, so I didn't have to learn anything. Are you a perfectionist about that stuff? Well, when I'm playing for the Rolling Stones, yes. And it is so beautiful. I've always wondered, when you, you know, turn on the radio now, if you listen to the radio, and I hope you do, or go into a store and you hear yourself, what do you think? I laugh. How come? I had it inside me to do these things. But all I was missing was the opportunity. It's such a great, rich life. Uh, Al Cooper, thank you. And congratulations. Oh, thank you. You can't always get what you want. Al Cooper, Somerville resident, gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tonight. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com.